0: This week is someone who I think has told stories from those who suffer history better than um, many, many people over the last few years. He's Daniel Trilling, former editor of New Humanist, writer and the author of Bloody Nasty People, which was an expose on the British right and most recently Lights in the Distance from 2018 which is an extraordinary chronicle of migrant and refugee voices, of those who have been crossing Europe's borders for the last 10 years. I was, think, I was thinking also a lot about um, how, the, my, how um, things like Windrush, Grenfell, things to do with numbers and identity and bodies and race and racism and policy and the shift right were like the earlier chapter in the same story to what is happening now?
1: You mentioned um, the Grenfell fire and the Windrush scandal um, as, in a way, kinds of precursors to what's happening now. I'd probably also add, um, you know, the death toll in the Mediterranean. Yes. Um, yes. And the scale of what was happening, you know, at Europe's borders during the peak of the refugee crisis. And yeah, yes. I mean, I've thought that in a way, a couple of things. I think on the on the level of the of sort of statistics and numbers and counting the dead. Um, one thing that I feared throughout the spread of the pandemic is the moment that the shocking death toll becomes a kind of background noise, you know, and that um, it loses its immediate shock value and then gets absorbed into the wider background of shocking and terrible statistics that are then reported on as if they were kind of like the weather or something, you know. Yeah. Or it, uh, were still then not reported on. I don't know if you saw, there was a um, a front page of The Sun newspaper a week or two ago that had, the the, the main story was about um, whether or not pubs would reopen and was a, I think it was a kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek tone to it. And then there was a little flash that just said, you know, x number of people dead see page four and that was the moment i thought ah okay this is now starting to happen That's even with it where um i mean i think it's it's not just the british thing but i think as a within british media and political discourse there's a there's a very well practiced way of shoving these kind of events into the background so that they either become a fact of life unfortunate but it's there what are you going to do we're trying our best or were still the people who have the victims start getting blamed for their own misfortune. Mm. Um, and I think um, you saw elements of that in um, responses to the Grenfell fire, certainly. Um, to go further back, it's something that was there with the Hillsborough disaster. I think that's, you know, one yes. of the things that cast a long shadow over British politics in that respect. Mm. Um, and then, you, you know, just to reiterate, this isn't, you know, unique to Britain. I think the various reactions to Europe's refugee crisis saw these kind of hostile or um, indifferent discourses developing around what was happening. Um, But also, I think the role that statistics play within this is that they provide, that's the thing that really gets fought over. and I wonder sometimes if that sort of obscures more important things. i um, not to say that statistics aren't important or, mm. you know, looking at the kind of sum total of the damage caused by a particular event or a particular t- decision isn't important, but um, this, you know, the obvious things that get missed, there are ways in which to describe an event or a cat- catastrophe that that relates it to people's lives on, on other levels. Um, the obvious one would be what that means in terms of impacts on individuals and families and smaller communities that are easier for people to imagine or imagine themselves part of, um, but also, I think, it, what gets missed out is looking at the nature, sort of looking at the nature of the response to disasters. And I think the other way in which those recent events strike a chord with what's happening now, certainly in. a in, at least in my impression, is the way in which you've, in in the last decade or so, you've had a series of of catastrophic events of varying scale, you know, some horrible accidents, others a result of policy, but increasingly the the responses to them have revealed that in various ways, the state isn't there when people maybe assumed it would be to (laughs) pick up the pieces um or to support people and what you have instead is this kind of sort of neoliberal free-for-all where you get this strange and quite antagonistic mix of uh volunteer-led responses um you know business interests trying to get in and trying to buy up bits of what the state is doing and provide services on the state's behalf and then kind of very complex and murky NGO world where you have all of these different groups acting for a variety of different reasons, many of which are entirely admirable. Um, But that can range from things like, you know, large semi-corporate global aid agencies to small groups of political activists to you know, billionaires who buy a boat and want to sail it around the Mediterranean, rescuing people for for whatever reason they have. Um, and what happens there is, you know, there's a real lack of accountability. Um, I think, and in even even just putting all the pieces together and saying, well, they, you know, being able to understand what's happening in total when it's made up of all these different fragmented pieces mm-hmm. of different responses and. Um, different people involved for different reasons and I think you can see that happening again now.
0: Mm. That's really interesting because it makes either um, moral justice or what we now call social justice let alone criminal justice as a lot of human rights lawyers will tell you really difficult because you know we haven't got the heroes and villains one thing we got used to that a long time ago And, and a sense of a kind of well that's what just what it is that horrible expression that came in we are where we are it is what it is um that came that is producing this moral political landscape which is very difficult to live in and indeed to die in um as we're discovering i want to go back to the something you just said there which is about you know how you describe these new realities or how we describe the now what is your sense of what the virus is doing to um the migrant landscape and and migrant um lives um now and how has that changed or what's the what's the next chapter from bites in the distance
1: well i mean obviously it's made me think about the people that i met during mm. the course of my research for that book um some you know some of whom i'm still in touch with and others i'm not and particularly as italy is a place that i did a lot of the research in and that was the first country to have you know such a drastic lockdown imposed in europe it made me immediately i wonder how you know so and so is doing uh in sicily or in naples or wherever um and uh you know a few people i've contacted and spoken to um but rather than their individual situations what's probably more interesting about it is first of all the way in which i think there's already been some discussion you know refugees who are writers or journalists have already um, produced material about, that compares their experiences of war or fleeing war to um, what's happening now. Um, But the thing that struck me was sort of the ways in which, so often the situations I encountered people in, in Europe and the UK, were that while they were claiming asylum or trying to find some other kind of resolution to their situations, they were in these prolonged states of waiting the the limbo that the system put them in Um, and in a way that's what most of us to varying degrees are now in and and dealing with so I keep thinking for example about there's a a Syrian family that I met in Bulgaria in 2014 who are now in Germany and who I went to visit at different points on their journey and I I was always struck by how often um, the the members of the family that I knew were just glued to their phones um, in a way that I felt was sometimes trying to shut out the reality of where they were, you know, the the town around them, because they didn't really want to be there, Um, particularly when they were kind of in a place that was just a transit stop between where, you know, where they'd left and where they ultimately wanted to end up. And that what they would be doing would be looking at, um, you know, videos shared among the Syrian refugee diaspora or stuff relating to their the places they'd left back home, you know, how the development of the war in Syria, um, videos from their hometown, uh, or, you know, totally escapist stuff like football, TV, whatever, and it, it's just, I just keep thinking about that when I realize that I've spent yet another hour scrolling through Twitter. Yes. You know, sitting on my sofa, or just even looking at the way that people who I follow on Twitter are now using social media. It's clearly, it's a way of dealing with the fact that a lot of the rest of their lives are on hold yeah the idea of lockdown quarantine Mm. states kind of trying to divide up people and keep them separate for for various reasons and i think um the experience of refugees and migrants in europe is is one thing we should be i think be very aware of at the moment because it really illustrates the ways in which that can be done incredibly brutally and in a way that harms people and also creates really negative political consequences as well you know stokes Mm. the very backlash that the measures are supposedly there to prevent for example it's not just as a you know kind of symbolic warning that these kind of things could happen to us it's also that the pandemic is causing governments around Europe to now treat refugees migrants other marginalized groups such as Roma communities already in more brutal ways than they were being treated previously. So I've actually, one of the recent bits of work that I've been doing has been to try and track what's happening to these communities as the pandemic develops. And one of the patterns that I think you're starting to see emerge in in certain parts of Europe is the use by governments of uh, what really goes beyond quarantine measures. They're kind of in sort of militarized cordons close off groups of people that governments would rather not bother with. So in Slovakia and Bulgaria there's been a series of reports of Roma settlements just being completely closed off by the police. Um, You know when there's been reports of one or two cases of coronavirus there Um, and rather than act in the interest of the safety of the people who live there they're just shutting everybody in together. Uh, The Italian police in Rome did something very similar with a squat that several hundred African migrants live in. So they just surrounded it with fences and sent the military in to stop anybody going in and going out and the, you know there were reports saying that in that squat you know 18 people shared one toilet for example so it's again um a form of bordering that is not actually in the interest of public health but is based on pre-existing stigma around which groups of people are kind of dirty mm-hmm. and undesirable and they're therefore a threat to the the wider community and I think that a that's already happening to people in in parts of Europe but b it shows the quite unpleasant ways in which the various forms of state control that we're currently consenting to could develop if they're not um restrained and subject to democratic accountability I think.